Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Meanest Man That Ever Lived" by Bruno Lessing. This is first published in Cosmopolitan Magazine, May 1908, and uh, I. I was processing the whole magazine, and I thought, the meanest man who ever lived. Who is that? (laughs) Um, And it turns out um, the title might be slightly misleading. (laughs) Uh, Because the ending is is, uh, pretty funny. Uh, This is a pretty funny story. Um, I enjoyed reading it, but there's some parts of it that I enjoyed reading even more, which is the... the, um, what What do we call that at the beginning? When... Uh, they're using, I don't know, phonetics? Phonetic? It's dialect. Yeah, phonetic dialect. So, is he the meanest man what ever lived in their world? Asked Davy with an exaggerated <laughs> eagerness I, that children always possess to... I, I, don't mean to I don't mean to be uh, critical, Jesse, but you make it sound like a bad transcription of German, and I think it's clearly supposed to be a a bad transcription of Yiddish. Well, they're not that different, but uh, yeah, go for it. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, let's see. Uh, hey, look, you. Oh, such meanness! He is the meanest man in New York. He is the meanest man in the United States in America. Is he the meanest man in the whole world, Grandpa? You know, that's <laughs> it's 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 more Yiddish than German, but. That's but I had the advantage of growing up with immigrant grandparents who taught me how you talk in the Yiddish with English, you know. Yeah, I did too, but uh, is is this set in New York? I thought it was set in New York, but maybe it's not. Oh, it's absolutely in New York. First of all, it says the meanest man in New York, and then we're told oh, yes, yes. we get East Broadway, Rivington Street, Houston Street. I mean, we, we get street names that are from the Lower East Side. Okay. All right. Um, and it's also, uh, everyone should check out the PDF because it's illustrated uh, and in color, which is, or at least two-tone color, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I'd not heard of Bruno Lessing before, but uh, I read his Wikipedia entry, and uh, this guy is kind of important in a number of ways. Um, uh, besides writing, this is a, uh, it's not exactly a series, but he wrote a series of stories set in the Jewish community in New York um, that were pretty popular, I think. Uh, but uh, in terms of influence in my own life, um, this guy was really important to comics, apparently. Um, yeah. He was the guy who w- did the the words for The Yellow Kid, which was a very early comic. And he was, more importantly, he was the he was the he basically the comics editor for the Hearst newspaper chain, which was basically the biggest one. Out there, and they basically invented comics, right? Uh, uh, newspaper comics, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and th- those are the first kind of comics, so that's really important. Uh, and apparently, um, the word balloon, right, is where it, w- it was developed here, and that was a pretty huge development still in use today, right? Yep. Um, Lessing is a, is a uh, pseudonym. Yes, this is his pseudonym for his. I guess his fiction. He used his uh, his real name was Block, um, and he used that. I guess for other other things. 
Um, I'm not sure. Was Cosmopolitan a, another Hearst publication? Because he owned Hearst, or the Hearst family, anyways, owned tons of media. I don't know. The masthead, as you know, says that uh, it's international magazine company mm-hmm. rather than the Hearst organization. Um, so I don't know if the international magazine company is owned by the Hearst company. I, I'd never heard that that was true. It is important for modern um, readers to know that Cosmopolitan at this time was a literary magazine, not a women's magazine. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it was a, a pretty prestigious magazine in terms of you know market share and such. Um, I, I guess it's... It, it, it was for a long time, but uh, it put out a ton of fiction, and this this thing is just chock full of fiction, all with beautiful illustrations. There, uh, there's another guy. We've there's probably several actually in here, but Albert Hubbard um, has a, a piece at the beginning called "Dignity of Trade," and um, it's got color plates, and it's it's pretty pretty great magazine to just read and go through. Um, <clears throat> This story, though, um, I got to the end of it, and I'm like, I think I know what's going on here. It's kind of a moral, but then uh, going back to the very beginning, uh, you know what? Maybe you should try and explain what's going on in this story, <laughs> if you don't mind. Well, I'll try for a, a summary to begin with, okay. at least. Um, it begins uh, with a bar mitzvah party uh, celebrating... The and, and this is long before bar mitzvahs became the major production that they are nowadays in, in North America. So uh, there's a, a group of men. This is an Orthodox community. The men and women are separated. Uh, a group of men sitting around, as is the grandson, Davy, who's just been bar mitzvah and therefore is in some sense now a man. Um, he's 13. They're sitting around. And something uh, comes up, a story about somebody who does something mean. Um, and then Davy asks, was he the meanest man in New York, in, uh, in America, in the world? Was he the meanest man that ever lived? And all of the men, at, that is much older men, at the table, uh, sort of looking at the sky, the ceiling, I should say. And they don't want to meet each other's eyes. But... Ah. Uh, but then they say, uh, no, he wasn't the meanest. And then whoever this person is, um, and it could be Davy, who's, who's the narrator, but I doubt it. It's some other youngster. No, it can't be Davy because Davy goes to bed. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, but the I, I, I assumed it was Bruno Lessing, myself. I mean, perhaps. Um, so it's a pseudonymous I. Uh, <laughs> gets to learn the story and then what follows inside so it's a front frame story is the story of someone who is presumably the meanest man that ever lived it's the story of a man named Rosenheim who has a small print company it has one uh, loyal overworked and probably underpaid employee named Brandis Um, and we can tell that he has no family Um, And as far as we can tell, he also seems to have very little connection with the religious life of the Jews of the Lower East Side of New York, uh, because we see him sitting in the sunlight on the steps of his print shop um, on a Shabbos. That is, it's Sabbath. You're not allowed to work, so the print shop is closed. 
but he's not at the shul, which is the Yiddish word for synagogue. Synagogue is Greek, meaning taught together. Shul is uh, the Yiddish word from German, meaning it's a school. Mm -hmm. The, The history of Judaism has the place of worship as a place of study. And, but he's not there. He's just sitting. And when the sun, but he starts chuckling to himself. And when the sun sets, which means Sabbath is now officially over, he sets inward into motion his plan. His plan is to get a will. And he is um, miserly. He, ha- he underpays the lawyer for the will, and he has different words left out. There's the name of the, um, the, the, uh, those who are to inherit and the names of the executors. And since he has a print shop, he prints multiple copies of this. And then he goes along and he tells two at a time, you're in my will, but don't tell anybody else <laughs> because my friends will be jealous. And he also tells them, uh, you know, I don't have that long to live because the doctor tells me I like port wine too much and I eat too much. And both of those are bad for me. And, of course, his friends immediately start to give him much port wine and much food. They're in, <laughs> giving, inviting him to dinner. He stops having to pay for anything. He's always a miser. Uh, and now he's found a way to be even more miserly. They all expect that this is going to happen. But when they catch on that he's not dying, they sort of stop giving him stuff. So he moves on to another pair. And this happens over the course of years. Mm -hmm. But then one day, quietly, in his sleep, his heart just stops. And then a man named Stuart, who has not been previously mentioned, says, I've been his lawyer for years, and I have the last version of his will, which was from three days ago. And everybody, he's got this list of names. You're all to come to the print shop for the reading of the will. And it turns out that none of them collects anything. But Brandis, his loyal employee, is given the business and the house. And all the rest of his property is given to the Jewish Charitable Fund to be used as it sees fit. And Stuart is the head of the Jewish Charitable Fund. So it looks like he has been the meanest man in the world, (laughs) the meanest man that ever lived, because he's taking, taking, taking. He's so miserly. But in fact, what he does with his, his money is to give a functioning business to his one loyal colleague, and then to turn over all the rest to a society that will distribute it to those who need it. Because all the people who've been feeding him have, them, have themselves been mean, <laughs> looking to hasten his death. So then along comes the holidays, right? So along comes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah being the beginning of the year, of, it's, it's a beginning of, of the year. There are four of them in the Hebrew calendar. And then about eight days later, it's supposed to be the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Well, you can't atone for your sins if you're maintaining um, hatred in your heart. And so the rabbi, individuals like those who gone for, you know, hastened this fellow's death or hoped to and were angry at having been cheated out of inheritance, go to their rabbis, respectively, and what do I do? And they say, well, you know, go make amends, go you know, forgive him. 
And so we have a scene at the end in which every single one of these people is encountered at the grave mm-hmm. of Rosenheim. And so what is it? Uh, so suddenly a great light dawned upon Rosnowski, who's one of the two original dupes. Fishlevitz, he whispered. Fishlevitz is the other. What is it? whispered Fishlevitz. Rosenheim was a smart man. <laughs> then they looked at each other and grinned. Right. So was he the meanest man who ever lived, or was he slightly... He was mean in the sense that he taught them a lesson that they didn't like having been taught them, but nevertheless accept. <laughs> well, I... I, I this is this is very hard for me to understand. I think I think maybe what they're telling us is that mean is as mean does. Mm. And he was mean. But, you know, the opening frame is perhaps worth looking at. Yes. Cohen the tailor, the fat old fellow with the long gray beard who used to sell his wares from open carts in the Hester Street Mart, gave a bar mitzvah party in honor of his grandson, Davy, who had just completed his 13 year. There were many guests, I among them. Cohen, seated at the head of the table, had told the story of a mean man. This man, a perfect stranger, had purchased a pair of trousers at Cohen's cart. Uh, by the way, I, there were still push carts in New York mm-hmm. when I was a child. I remember buying things from them on Pitkin Avenue in Brooklyn. I among them. Co- uh, sorry. Uh, while Cohen was uh, – he purchased a pair of trousers at Cohen's cart. While Cohen was wrapping them up, the stranger deftly relieved him of his gold watch, meaning it's a pickpocket. Then he gave Cohen a $20 bill. That's a huge amount of money at the beginning of the 20th century in which he knew Cohen would have to go some distance to change. In his absence, the stranger walked off with the cart. <laughs> Incidentally, the $20 bill was counterfeit. <laughs> okay? So, so That's we a pretty mean man. <laughs> it's a pretty mean man. And having seen only the title, The Meanest Man That Ever Lived, it's understandable that one might think that's the meanest man. And Davy then asks, is he the meanest man? Was he the meanest man? Um I think the fact that when the grandfather, uh, Cohen the tailor, says, well, you know, he wasn't, there was a meaner man. He never identifies who that man was. And it may well be that the meaner man was himself and each of the people around Mm. themselves as the meanest men. That's why they couldn't speak in front of Davy and sent him to bed. Yeah, I was I was curious because you know, uh, bar mitzvah. The I think it's a really interesting tradition. A lot of cultures have it, um, you know, other than the Jewish culture. But the the main thing is is it says you're a man now, so you have to act like a man. You have to start thinking of what's good for the family. You're not a child anymore, right? But they send him to bed like a child. And well, I was thinking, why didn't he? Why wasn't he allowed to stay for this lesson, right? And and I think that you might be onto something in saying that you know who identifying who the meanest man who ever lived was, um, you know, I, it, it's right in the title, right? It it could have been any sort of dinner party. Why was it? Why does it have to be a bar mitzvah? 
the meanest man who ever lived. Who is that man? I have some thoughts toward an answer, but if you do, I I will desist. No, I I just I was thinking like what you were saying is you know it's never identified who that man is. Um, so, so traditionally, not not nowadays, not even when I was bar mitzvah, right? Um, but way back when this became was going on, traditionally. If you go back to the middle of the 19th century, bar mitzvah is a comparatively new ritual. Uh, not much was made of it. Um, it. Technically, what a bar mitzvah is, right? it means the child of the commandment. Um, what a bar mitzvah is, is you come up to the, to the altar, the bima in Hebrew, and you get to say the prayer, the commandment, um, the, the mitzvah um, that allows you to read from the Torah, the scroll, then you read a portion from the scroll, and then you say the closing mitzvah. And that's it. That's what a bar mitzvah began as originally in the middle of the 19th century. You just you got called up. And that happened at the age of 13 because that was the age of 13 when Abraham made the um, covenant with God. Uh, whose father was a maker of idols, he became um, the first Jew at 13. And so at 13, you are called to the Torah. Before then, you are not able to do it. The the quorum, the minion in Hebrew, uh, the quorum for having prayer is a group of 10 men in Orthodox Judaism. And what's a man? Well, you're not a man until you can come to the Torah. So the first time you are called up to the Torah, that's the time you have your bar mitzvah. And that's it. And then later developed the idea of having a, a, a celebratory dinner afterwards or something. And then it has grown and grown and grown. Now, when you're called to the Torah, traditionally, 10 men, one of them has to be a priest. Judaism has a, has a hereditary priesthood. Then follows somebody who is from those who serve the priests and then follow seven more. So the 10 men, first you have to have a priest. Then, in theory, you would have the next one to come up to the Torah would be from those who hereditarily serve the needs of the priesthood, and then come the people at large. They are the Kohanes, the Levites, and the Israelites. The name Kohen comes from those who were hereditary priests. They're the ones who set the rules and make sure this works right. The story opens with Cohen the tailor. Mm -hmm. Now, there are lots of Jewish names, especially in America, some of which don't appear to be particularly Jewish, like Stewart is the name of this That's lawyer. That's right, John Stewart. Exactly. As is John Stewart, you know, from Comedy Central, is, is also Jewish, as, as he makes clear in what he says. So Stewart is a Jewish name, but it's an anglicized name. It's not right. You can have lots of different names, but one name is repeated. The story begins with Cohen the tailor. Mm -hmm. And then then we have the inner story and the inner story gives us Cohen the lawyer. It's Cohen, the lawyer, who makes up the will for Rosenheim. And I think what's going on here, because obviously Lessing, uh, Block by birth, a New York Jew born in 1870, he knew what was going on. What he's saying is Cohen, the tailor, right? the, 
is the guy who is going to give the lesson that we're all going to get, including how I came to learn the story. And Cohen, the lawyer, is the one who lays out the rules. This is a story about how Jewish community is passed on. Hmm. And what it recognizes is that terrible, cupiditous stereotype of the grasping Jew. And yet beneath it, there is a sense of community that says it's the wealthy. Because Cohen the tailor, turns out he has a dozen carts. He's a wealthy man. And Cohen the lawyer apparently did just fine. It's only the wealthy who are taken by Rosenheim. But the story that we get from these two aspects of the hereditary priest, you know, telling the tale and setting the laws, is that beneath this need to grasp money is a need, in fact, that expresses itself in hospitality and in passing on a sense of community and if you have no one who needs it directly from you, you give it back to the community and the Jewish Charitable Association Society gets to distribute it as needed. But there is a, a social cause for this role that Jews have been criticized for. But sometimes if they look at themselves, not only can they recognize it in shame, but that when reminded of Rosenheim, they can look at each other and chuckle and say, yes, so, they're smart. So Co- uh, there's no, you don't think that, the, the, that Cohen changed careers after uh, being a lawyer and no, becoming I embarrassed? No, I think there are two Cohens. Yeah, that make, that, that's entirely, I think, makes sense. Um, I, I also was thinking, like, oh, how would this be? Because this Cosmopolitan is not a magazine for Jews. It's just a magazine, right? Right. Um, but this is about a very particular community, and it's being written by a Jew who knows the Jewish community incredibly well. So when he's he's telling it, um, it could, you know, if you are uh, not reading it uh, closely enough, you might think, oh, this is a... Um, uh, it's a racist story. And I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I don't think this is so at all. And I also think, like, what is the motivation of the meanest man who ever lived? Uh, how do we say his name? Ro- Rosanovsky? No. Rosovsky? No, no. Uh, Rosenheim. 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 There we go. Ros- Ros- which, so, means, which means the home of roses in, right. in Yiddish. He, so his, his, he's sitting there thinking, right? Thinking and thinking, and what is he thinking about? Is he so? What one way I was thinking is that he's thinking about about how he's going to rip everybody off, and that's going to be funny, and, and he's going to love it because he's so miserly. But while he's accumulating his estate, and he's living off of all of these guys who are so greedy for his estate, um, he's accumulating his estate, and then what does he do with it? He gives it to the community. It's almost like he's taxing them so that they'll all have a tax put upon them. And he only, ta- like the way he does it, right? He only targets those who are susceptible to it, right? Yep. So, so if, you don't, if you don't pay, uh, no problem. Um, but if you do pay, then 
he'll keep paying <laughs> until you twig to the idea that you're getting ripped off. So it's almost like it's almost like he's teaching the lesson here, and this this joke that he's having on everybody, um, except for his his uh, assistant, is. I was thinking, is it moral? <laughs> I was thinking, is is he an immoral person? He, I don't think he actually lies to them at an, any point. He certainly well, he makes does. them think that they're going to get something that they may not get. But I think, I think there is one lie. We have lie? no reason to believe that his doctor ever told him. Ah, yes. That that port and rich food would kill him. Right. Well, In doctors fact, do the, say the that, other though. doctor. The other doctor says. No, no. Rosenheim is the healthiest man around. Right, right. Yeah, that that is. I guess that is a lie, and you know, in in service to his evil plan, that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty bad. But on the other hand, I think it's a pretty great joke. <laughs> I do too. I really enjoyed reading it. It's it, it's. Uh, I, I wish there was uh, so. I also, uh, I had a question at the beginning. It's like, is this set in New York? Obviously, the frame is set in New York. Um, uh, but it does say the ghetto, I guess, in the in the internal story. Um, and I assume it's just the ghetto of New York as well. But was there any internal evidence to say that this wasn't a story from the old country? Rivington Street, I guess you would know. Yeah, I, I mean, I know all these streets. Okay. I, I mean, I've, I've been to these streets. Right. I, I, I bought pickles at a pickle factory on Rivington <laughs> Street. Did you ever my, uh, see a... My grandfather actually had a, a place on Rivington, my paternal grandfather, on Rivington Street at one point in his life. Did you ever uh, purchase a pair of trousers from a, a cart and uh, give a $20 I've never bill? purchased trousers from a cart, but I have purchased a shirt from a cart, <laughs> and I was probably... Oh, I, I can remember the push carts on Pitkin Avenue back when I was perhaps five and six years old. Obviously, they're long gone because, you know, the, the city has succumbed to the need for more space for auto traffic and nobody can be pushing put cart, push carts around. But uh, but I, I did. I, I used to. In fact, as late as when I was in high school. So I started high school in 1959. There was a. A pretzel push cart that was at the exit from the subway stop that I used on a daily basis. Um, it wasn't a, th- a thriving mart; it was just the one cart. But yeah, this this is this is New York. This is New York, uh, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, New York had a huge population. Uh, I mean, it had the single largest population of Jews in the world when I was a kid, thanks to uh, Hitler. Um, There was no city that had more Jews than New York. So it makes sense to set it there. So um, is is there any significance to the, um, to the lawyer, uh, the lawyer and the way the will is done out? Because I'm not super familiar. I've never made a will, but he says um, it'll be fifteen dollars, and the, he says, oh, "I want a very simple will, just five dollars." <laughs> and then he prints up his own, which I think was great because he has to be a printer for him to right. not not make a bad deal there, right? And he and I think he keeps printing them up as he needs them, right? Agreed. Yes, he he. In fact, he locks the type into the into the safe. We're told so that it's just ready to be reused. The first time he does it, he does it with the expectation he may be doing it again. Mm-hmm. 
And and I like, and his job. I mean, what a, what a printer does is make multiple copies of things. So R- Rosenheim is expecting that you know what he is going to create works for not just for one audience, one audi- person, but an audience of many, many people. But he doesn't he doesn't know how long he'll live, right? So he's going to so, keep doing it and keep doing it. And then when he may, maybe actually feels ill, <laughs> that's when right. he actually uh, fills in the actual person and institution that he actually cares or thinks deserves it. Yeah. But because he's miserly and he's not spending that money, right? Um, sure, he's getting lots of nice meals out of it, new hats. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that money does go back to the community. I think, I, I think there's something like real. And that's why I was like, why is Davy? not being given this lesson because it's so embarrassing but if that's true then who who the i is why is he being treated to it well it says there were many guests and my presumption is that davy is again remember the uh maybe it really no, is his bedtime i don't know the notion, the notion of this the notion of separation right there are no women at this dinner table discussion although my, I'm sure that it's women who served the food before the conversation gets to this point. Um, and so uh, it could be someone who's moved into the neighborhood since Rosenheim died, for example, mm. another man um, with whom they would share this, uh, I suppose. Um, but it does feel like something that Davy could be initiated into understanding. It's just not something people want to admit. He's going to find out something about his grandpa that makes his grandpa look bad, right? Is that what yes. it is? Well, I think it would, but I think for whatever the motive is for telling it, by the end of it, because we have the chuckle, you know, the chuckle begins on the steps of the printing house. And the chuckle ends walking away from Rosenheim's grave. Mm. So he has managed Rosenheim to find something acceptable it's sort of a a mild ironic laugh Mm. right and he's managed to to perpetuate that by letting other people say ah you know that was wrong of us we should know better let us forgive him and let's get past this so maybe the story was a good story to tell to someone whether it's davy or a new member of the community so this is what a man has to know Mm mm-hmm so the the meanest man, I don't know who was the meanest man. Maybe the meanest man, after all, were the people who wanted to kill for this money, which Rosenheim never did. You know, there's, uh, there's a, a place at which uh, the wife, uh, there's a wife of one of these people who says uh, when she hears that Rosenheim um, shouldn't eat too much uh, rich food or I'll she was annoyed that she didn't have enough yeah. rich food, right? So it's 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 men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, something about the community, but also there the community has this organization. You know, it's really there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, I think it's a complicated story. It's not quite clear who the meanest man alive is. And maybe it's not Davy who's hearing it. After all, as you suggested, uh, that he wasn't um, when we began talking. Because, you know, at 13, it just means that you now officially are able to help form the minion of 10 men. 
no, no Jewish family has ever thought that magically at the age of 10, no. you're no longer a, a 13, you're no longer a child. People always knew but that. But you have to start, you have to say it at some point, and, and being a man is not being uh, a boy, right? He, well, not being a boy legally is not – not you know, at, at 18 in, in America, um, you can sign a contract and it's binding. Right. If you sign it at 17, it's not binding. Right. Does that mean that at 18 you became no. legally wise? No, it just means that at 18 you became legally responsible for what you wrote and at 17 it's your parents who are legally responsible for your signature. Um, there has to be a, a dividing line and the dividing line of bar mitzvah – is only to say, remember, this is at the shul, the place where you study. It's only to say, now you can go and read directly from the Torah yourself. Right. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. As but opposed to, you know, just, I mean, at least there, it's saying, you know, there's something, that reading, right? Taking it into account and saying, um, look, I'm not going to be told what the book says. I'm going to read for myself. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's typical of this culture, which has often thought of itself as the people of the book, that after you read, why does it happen in the temple? Because why does it require people? You're not sitting alone. You read the book. It's the law. That's what Torah means, the law. Even though it's stories, it's the law. And you read the law. And then there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.